Good morning. How are you out there? Good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Get that last bit of pie wiped off your face. It's about all time you have because now it's Christmas. We start pumping this Christmas. I, love, I was like, wait, Christmas Eve, yeah, that is coming. It is Advent se- season. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really excited that you took time after the uh, turkey coma this weekend that you induced on yourself to be here with us to worship this morning. Uh, with Advent comes uh, some exciting things. The next four weeks, we're going to spend time working through some of the traditional uh, words that are associated in the church with Advent uh, season, and we're going to be talking about our Advent offering. This is something that we've done for years here at the church, and we're going to be doing again this year, uh, leading up to a collection that we do on Christmas Eve. Our Advent offering is an offering that we collect at the end of every year, and every dollar that we collect goes outside of the church walls as we focus on things that we put in categories called close, near, and far, things that we're doing locally, things that we're doing nearby, and things that we're doing around the world. It's a really exciting project to be a part of, and we'd love to for you to think about your holiday giving as you contemplate these things. If you want more information about our Advent offering, there's actually a great um, display out in the lobby that you can go check out that gives you a little information about the places that we are engaged in the world. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be telling you stories and interviewing people who are engaged in some of the work that our Advent offering goes to promote. And I'm really excited for you to hear from one of those people here this morning. Uh, a, A number of years ago, one of the things that I get to do here at the church that I love is to host our launch point class. It's a small group environment where people who are new here to the church come, learn about the church and how to get connected. They meet leaders and they meet other people who are here in the church and are brand new. And the person you're going to be hearing from this morning, uh, I met him in Launch Point, and I remember him feeling very lonely and isolated and by himself. Uh, And I'm going to hopefully have him share a little bit of why he was feeling that way this morning. If you would just uh, join me in welcoming my friend Enoch to the stage. Enoch, would you come up? Good morning, Enoch. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Jeff? Good, good, good. Come on up here. Thank you. So, uh, Enoch, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, uh, and maybe that'll fill in a little bit of the idea of why you were maybe feeling a little lonely when you showed up in that class all thank, those years ago. Thank you so much, um, and thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so as you've heard, my name is Enoch. I come from a small country in the southeastern part of Africa called Malawi, and those of you who know anything about the culture of Africa, we are people who are still enjoying tribal gatherings, community, so where I come from, no one is a stranger. Hmm. If you see anyone who looks like they're a stranger, you are taught from a young age that we are community, no man is an island. So it's not the job of the stranger to find a place in the community. It's a job of the community to find a place for the stranger. Coming here, it was the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember specifically you talking about the isolation that you felt moving from your culture that was shaped in that way to this culture here. Uh, Well, the good news is I feel, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like uh, this has become more of your community over the last number of years. Would you say that's true? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. More than a community. I would say a family, Mm. um, which is unbelievable. Mm. Um, Everyone knows about the American culture, the individualism. Everyone here has heard a story about that. 
But to be a church and feel the difference, I know it's Christ. Hmm. Uh, my parents were here, some of us might know. Um, they got to experience part of that. I used to tell them, hey, it's okay. I found a home. <laughs> I found people who I can call fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters. And still, my mom was skeptical. I'm the only son in the house with three sisters, so I'm still a mama's boy. And until she came, and she was like, okay, I think you found a home. Yeah, it was so great to have your parents here. The last year they came out to visit, which was really great. Um, what, what do your parents do in Malawi? My parents have been uh, pastors. Forgive my accent. I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about ministry. Uh, they've been in ministry for 40 years. Mm. And so, yeah, they, they have been in ministry. I've been raised by parents who've been in church my entire life. Hmm. It was so great to hear about the work that your dad is doing across Malawi. What brought you here to the U.S.? My wife is from here. She was born and raised, uh, Brittany, Brittany Barrio. Uh, she was born and raised here in Gilbert. Uh, all her folks are here. But I came here also because of school. I Girl did... first, school second. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Dude, yeah, got it. So I did a bachelor's at uh, Grand Canyon University, and then I also did, I just finished a master's at Grand Canyon University uh, two weeks ago. Yes, Thank you. Yes, two weeks ago. That's great. So uh, we love you, Enoch. We love your story. It's really great. But one of the things I really wanted to have you up here to talk about is how your experience here, the education that you received at Grand Canyon, has now prepared you to look back to a place that is familiar to you, home, and see problems in a new light that exists there in Malawi. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you've been engaged in over the last number of months? Because it's pretty exciting. Yes. Yeah, so one of the mistakes that I grew up being taught that it's a mistake is a mistake of thinking that people who are not as fortunate as us, they are dumb. Thinking poverty means lack of intelligence. Hmm. So then we we start reducing people from what they're supposed to be. People are images and likenesses of God. Hmm. And everyone who is an image and likeness of God has some sort of intelligence, a smartness that comes from God. Hmm. And so growing up, I used to see my father in every congregation believing that these people are still called to do what God called them in Eden which is go and have dominion, make the whole earth an Eden. And Malawi is right now like one of the, it's in the top 20 poorest countries in the world. But I grew up seeing my father going in communities and believing that these people who only have one meal to eat have been given the capacity to not only experience the joy of the Lord, but to bring the joy of the Lord in their community. Hmm. And it used to confuse me. Like, why would you be believing that these people can be used to transform their own community when they are poor, they don't even have anything to eat? But to see the joy that people have when they're functioning in the image and likeness of God is more than anything. So that's the mentality I grew up with. And coming here, I realized that there's something that people don't really give when they think about giving which is the knowledge, the experience. Um, so 
education was, was part of it. And I, I went to GCU, a Christian university, but God allowed me to start to start a master's in business administration. And the whole journey has been realizing that every person has a dream. Hmm. And that dream can be used to change everything. So sitting down with folks back home and talking, I realized that people have dreams on how they can change their own communities. And just using the skills I learned from school, how to make a balance sheet, a statement of, in a statement of income, and how to raise capital from the community. People are starting businesses, not teaching them how to do business, but actually learning from them how to do businesses in their community, in their own way, in the way that their culture allows them. And just seeing God do that, my parents are part of that journey. Hmm. So that's one of the dreams that have come to fruition going to GCU and growing up and having this place that have allowed me to dream. Can you give me one example of a business that you've kind of helped dream alongside your countrymen? There's a guy who we have worked with in ministry for over 10 years. We have never talked about business. We just go in communities, preach, and teach the word and love people. After I started going to GCU, I called him. I'm like, hey, I know when we came to your community, we would see you do businesses. And the, within five minutes, he sent me a business plan. This is a guy who doesn't even speak English. He sends me a business plan. He's like, I sent myself to school last year, and I have a business plan, and I just don't know what's the next step. Right now, someone from Malawi donated um, a, bake, a, a bakery so that he can expand his business from just using a drum to produce bread to now working with machines, expanding his business. And he's hired over 10 people right now with his own capital, just helping him to structure the business. Things that we take for granted, having an accountant on standby, mm -hmm. having Excel spreadsheet. So uh, his name is uh, Friday. Friday? Yes. That's a great name. <laughs> Enoch, I'm, we are so excited about the things. I'll speak personally. I'm excited about the things that I hear you doing back home and your eye towards seeing growth and health in your home community. But I just need to confess in front of all these people what a gift you've been to us. I've learned a ton. I didn't expect to get emotional when you're up here, buddy, but... Um, it's very easy for us to think that there are things that we can help offer to you to be a conduit to your people back home. And I just want to express in front of all the people that are here, the gift that you've been to us, helping us learn and see things that we would never would have seen. And in particular, your heart of prayer has been such an encouragement to us as a staff, a pastoral staff in particular, to be able to learn from someone who breathes prayer what it looks like to have that in our midst. And we're just thankful to be able to help you. Part of the Advent offering that we collect goes to help, helping people like Enoch do work over there, helping his father in the ministry that they're doing in Malawi. And we're just really thankful. Can I pray for you and for the work that you're continuing to do? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Enoch. Thank you for the legacy that his parents have instilled uh, in him, being able to hear about 40 years of ministry and the way that they've raised their son to be a godly man who seeks righteousness and goodness wherever he goes, who is a man of prayer, who encourages us all the way across the world to be more connected to you. God, I just pray for a blessing upon Enoch and his family. Um, God, I pray that the work that you've put in his heart 
continues to bear fruit and that we get to see what it looks like uh, when the joy of the Lord breaks forth out of a man's life. I'm so thankful for Enoch for his friendship, for his leadership, and for bringing him to this church those years ago. God, we pray for your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys thank Enoch for being here? Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Yeah, don't forget any of your stuff. All right, uh, Enoch is great. If you get a chance and you see him wandering around, stop and talk to him. He'll tell you lots of great stories. He's, he's really great. Uh, I talked a little bit about what we're going to do here over the next four weeks in our Advent series. I mean, it seems hard to believe that we're already here, but Advent is an incredible season in the church. The church really has two amazing holidays that we celebrate, and they are so amazing that they come with a month of pre-celebration. One of them is Easter, where the church has traditionally celebrated a Lenten season leading up to it, and the other one is Christmas, and we celebrate Advent, the four weeks that lead up. Nobody's exactly sure where the tradition of celebrating a four-week-long Advent pre-run to Christmas started, but we have evidence that by at least 480 A.D., church Churches were practicing this memorial of leading up to the birth of Jesus at uh, Christmas. And the traditional, um, I don't know what to call these, uh, love, peace, I'm just going to read them, love, peace, hope, joy, what are these traditional, somebody help me out, what do you think those are called? I don't know. They're words, <laughs> emotions, let's call them. They're, they're, uh, they're classic traditional things that we look at at the holiday season. And today we're going to start with one of them. And we're going to start with what is the last one up here on the list. We're going to talk about joy. I didn't tell Enoch that joy was what I was talking about this morning, but I love to him talking about the joy of the Lord naturally out of his talk because we're going to talk about joy. And I actually chose this picture to begin with in, the, in this idea and theme of joy because it really does summarize for me part of the problem with using the word joy. It feels very cliché. It feels like a suburban person, woman holding a sign that's scroll cut, painted white, it feels like a sign that's hanging in a dining room somewhere. It feels like a t-shirt that someone made. Joy is one of those words that is very overused in our culture and in our society, and particularly when you get here to Christmas time, you see it all over the place. And yet I often wonder, do we actually know what joy looks like? And I think we're going to wrestle with a few of these questions uh, today. Here's a few of the things I want us to wrestle with. Here's three questions. First one is, are happiness and joy the same thing? Are those words interchangeable? Are they synonymous? We're going to take a look at that. The second one is, can joy be anything other than the cliche? Uh, the cliche that just kind of fades into the background and it means this vague sense of happiness or vague sense of satisfaction. And then the last one, is joy something that we can seek and find? Is joy something that we can run after? I spent a lot of time uh, in the lead up to this sermon actually thinking about this idea of happiness and joy and are they the, exactly the same thing? Uh, and in fact, if you go online and you search for the definition of happiness, it's going to give you in the very top line the, the synonym of joy. And therefore, the word is used interchangeably all the time. But I think there is a distinct difference that I've tried to articulate at the difference between happiness and joy. And here I'm going to use a metaphor that hopefully will help us. And here's the way I would say it. Happiness is a song enjoyed. Joy is an instrument that produces music. What do I mean by that? Happiness is a feeling that's experienced when something is happening. 
So for instance, I do not play any instruments. I don't sing particularly well. I can barely hum, but I love music. And when a song, particularly a song that I really enjoy, comes on, in that moment, as I'm experiencing the music from an external perspective, I'm enjoying it totally. But then the song ends. And now I'm ready for another song. And there's another problem that happiness, I think, reflects in this metaphor, is that there's nothing like a song that's a hit the first time they play it. I was going to say the radio, but... If you're old like me, you know what I'm talking about. They would play that new hit song, and it would come on the radio, and you're like, man, this is the bop. This is it. I like this. And then they would play it again in 35 minutes, and they'd play it again in an hour and a half, and they'd, 43 times a day, they would play it on the radio for the next three months. And what would happen to that happiness? I'd be sick of it because it would lose its effect on me. And this is oftentimes what happiness does to us. We pursue something to experience, food, travel, romance, drugs, alcohol, things that we hope are going to bring some sort of happiness, but they fade quickly, and oftentimes we use up the happiness that they have, and we move on to something else. What's the difference with joy? Joy is the instrument that produces music itself. You could say that happiness is the house and joy is the foundation that the house is built upon. My son, Beck, has started learning, to, teaching himself to play piano. And he will sit for hours in our house just producing music and playing songs. And I'm putting no effort in, and yet my heart is filled with joy because he is continually producing music out of that instrument. And I think this is the real difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is experienced in a moment, and joy is where that happiness can be born out of. The question that we have to wrestle with is, where do we find joy? Where is the source of joy? And the good news is we just came out of a series uh, looking at the kings, which we wrapped up with Solomon, who wrote much of Proverbs, and he gives us a picture at what joy looks like when he says this, the hope of the righteous brings joy. The hope of the righteous brings joy. Now the question is, who are the righteous and what is our hope that brings about that joy. We're going to spend some time looking at that today. I, I found this quote from uh, one of my favorite theologians and authors, and this is what he says about joy. He says, The reason the earthly, early Christians were so joyful was because they knew themselves to be living not so much in the last days as in the first days, the opening days of God's new creation. The way he talks about Christians and their joy, and we have to be very clear early Christians had very little external reason to be joyful. In fact, they were often in poverty, they were often persecuted, they were often martyred, and yet what they were marked by was joy. How is that possible? I think it's possible because the hope of the righteous brings joy. And what the early church understood was that they were not living in the last days of earth. They were living in the first days of a new creation, the one that God brings about. And as we start to talk about joy and Christmas, we're going to weave this together to talk about how do we pursue joy. Joy, if I'm being perfectly honest, feels like an ephemeral idea that comes and goes, and it's because I mistake happiness and joy. Joy, instead, is something that we can seek and we can find. And I'm going to give us three categories for joy that I think are going to help us as we do this. So here's what we got. Number one, I'm going to hopefully establish this for you, that joy is a time traveler. Number two, joy is a student of the master. 
And number three, joy is a spark of rebellion. Are you excited about that? All right. Here we go. Let's see if I can do it. The first one is this one. Joy is a time traveler. And if this is true, if joy is a time traveler, then today must be interpreted in light of a tomorrow we know. I have a confession for you. I love time travel stories, particularly time travel movies. Now, the minute I say time travel movies, you immediately think of Back to the Future. Good job. Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. They kind of get worse as they go along. But there's lots of them. Interstellar I love. There's a movie called Looper that's about time travel that's really interesting and good. Uh, Groundhog Day is really about time travel, kind of, right? Uh, there's, and then the ripoff of uh, Groundhog Day in a sci-fi setting with Tom Cruise called Edge of Tomorrow, same kind of idea. One of my favorite shows of all time is a show called Lost, um, which, once again, if you're old like me, you probably remember. Uh, and it was great, and then they started traveling through time, and it became legendary. Loved it. Uh, Stephen King wrote an amazing novel a number of years back about a guy who travels in time back to 1960 and tries to stop the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Really interesting stories. And if you're an Arizona native, uh, then you know the greatest time travel story ever told, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Here's the reason that time travel stories for me are so interesting, is because they ask interesting questions about what would you do given the opportunity to know what was going to happen tomorrow. That's the question that they're asking. If, I came to, if a time traveler came to you tomorrow and said, I know exactly where you should be investing, if you could travel in time back to 2003 with uh, some money and you could invest in Apple and Facebook and Amazon and Tesla, which didn't exist at the time, you'd probably get real cheap, Bitcoin, and then also he could tell you when you were supposed to sell them about six months ago before the market crashed, right? Like, there's so many things you could do with the information that comes along. Uh, there are tragedies that you could stop. One of the most fun games that uh, comes up in dinner conversation is if you could travel back in time and have dinner with one person or three people, who would it be? People always have interesting answers to those questions. The reality is time travel stories are so interesting because they allow us to be able to see into the future and reinterpret the past. And if we know the future, that directs our course of action in the present and our perception of a past we've experienced. So if we know the future, that directs our course of action in the present and it affects our perception of a past that we've experienced. Let's, let's look at Luke chapter 2. I want to read this to you. Uh, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And when they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Okay, before I give you commentary on this, I want you just for one or two seconds here to think, what feeling does this story give you? I'm going to speak for you because I'll tell you what it gives me. It gives me a feeling of hope. It it gives me a feeling of comfort because of what I've experienced It gives me a a feeling of joy, if I'm being honest. But 
that's because I know the future of this story. If I strip away the future that this story paints, this story is not one of those kinds of stories. This is a story of a young, unwed, pregnant woman. This is a story of a young man carrying the shame of that with him and her. This is the story of a forced tax collection move that seems like it's coming out of nowhere from an empire that oversees these people. And we love the story because the way we tell it, that they showed up in town and they went to the local Days Inn and they asked if there was any vacancy and they said, sorry, all our rooms are sold out, but we have a garage out back called the stable where you can go stay or the cave. Most scholars believe that because, David, or because Joseph needed to go back to the town of David, Bethlehem, in order to be registered for the census, this would have been a giant forced family reunion. Everyone in his extended family would be coming back to this place to stay in the family homestead. And so when it says there's no guest room available for them in, I think this is the NIV translation, it's probably getting a lot closer to the reality of this situation. Joseph shows up at the family reunion with his young, pregnant, unmarried situation. I'm guessing that comes with some embarrassment, some scorn, some shame. Not only that, they're forced to do it while she's going to have the baby. Now, if you've had children, you understand this is a fairly traumatic, loud, uh, chaotic experience, and you've got the entire family that's come to stay at the house. I want to take the text at its word and say there was no guest room available for them, but I think it was probably also very convenient to say, you know what, this is probably going to be best for everybody if you guys just go do your thing out there in the abandoned cave. This is a moment that is filled with all kinds of difficulty, but because we can see the future, we instead take a shameful and ignoble birth and we transform it into the arrival of a king. This is what the time-traveling ability of joy lets us do. We can take something that we're seeing and we can recast it in a light that changes everything about it. The birth of Jesus that we build up to for Christmas is a celebration, not because of this moment where this shameful thing happened, but because when we can see it in light of history, this is the moment where everything begins. This is an incredible moment. This last summer, uh, my son Asher was getting ready to go into high school, ninth grade, and him and I went on a father-son trip up to outside of Durango, Colorado to the San Juan Mountains. Uh, this picture here on this side shows you uh, us on the train. We got to take this train ride up into the mountains, and then we climbed from 8,000 feet of elevation to over 14,000 feet of elevation over the course of two days. Now, lest you think that I am some mountain man, uh, I grew up in North Dakota, our, I think the flattest place on the face of the earth, statistically. That's not even a joke. I think that's actually true. Uh, And then I moved to Arizona, and I'm here in the valley, which I think is just as low in elevation. And so this was an absolute grind. One of the things I said when I posted about it on social media was it was the hardest thing I've ever done physically, and my 14-year-old son was right by my side for every step of it. And what was key to us, particularly on the day when we had to summit the mountain, we had multiple miles to go, and we had three or 4,000 feet of elevation to climb to get to the top. 
was that this is terrible. Maybe it was just me. I don't know if Asher felt that way, but like every step I was like, this is horrible. Uh, and I really wanted to quit. In fact, there was a couple times that we sat down to rest and Asher looked at me and he had that look in his eyes like, all I need is for you to give me permission that we can quit. <laughs> and I said to him multiple times, listen, dude, we're, nobody's forcing us to do this. We're choosing to do this. But do you really want to quit now and go back and tell everybody we didn't make it? He's like, nope. And so we soldiered on. We spent six, seven hours climbing that thing before we made it to the top and got this picture of us elated at the top. Now, why would we do that? Why would we continue in the pain and the suffering and the horrible no oxygen experience? Because we knew that the moment when we reached the top was going to be worth it. And you can ask Asher after the service if it was, um, but this story would have a lot less impact if we quit and went back home. The reality is that there is a path that's been set before us as followers of Jesus. And because we can see the future, because joy is a time traveler, it allows us to endure things like a climb up a mountain because we know that the payoff is already guaranteed and is there. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set out before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus suffered the greatest shame, rejection, and violence that the world has ever put upon someone, and yet it says that he endured it because he had his eye fixed on the prize. He could see the future, and because joy is a time traveler, he was able to inhabit the joy of what was to come in order to endure the shame. So consider him as you walk the road that's been laid before you with perseverance. You can inhabit the same joy that Christ had in his life, because joy is a time traveler telling us that not only was he victorious, he will be victorious once and for all at the end of time. Therefore, we will not be put to shame as we walk our path with him. Joy is a time traveler. Let's move on to the next one. Number two, joy is a student of the master. And if that's true, then our sufferings can be repurposed and reimagined. I don't want to leave my uh, second son Beck out of this so I want to tell a story about him, too. A number of years ago, uh, Beck was, he's 10 years old now. He's probably five or six. Uh, and I took him and his little brother out to the Superstition Mountains for a little backpacking trip. It was kind of our first boys backpacking trip. And we just took a mile and a half hike or so. And that's far enough in the Superstitions that you really feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. And we set up camp, and we were hanging out. And because they're little boys, I was doing all the work, and I was really stressed and tired and sweaty and probably didn't have very much patience. But then the sun set and the stars started to come out. 
And there was a moment where we were standing in a clearing and they had their headlamps on and they're looking at everything that's really interesting there. And then I said, hey boys, I want you to come over here because we're gonna shut off all of our lights and let our eyes adjust to the darkness so that we can see the stars. And so we shut off our headlamps one by one. Beck, being the youngest, was the last one to shut it off. And we were standing there in the desert in pitch black, so dark. And the stars were incredible. And after about 30 seconds or so of standing there looking at the stars, all of a sudden I hear Beck's little voice and he says, Daddy, I'm scared. I said, what are you scared about, buddy? He said, it's too dark. And so I grabbed him by the shoulder and I pulled him close to me. And I said, it's going to be okay. Let's, let's see what God has for us with the stars. The reality is when I left that, I thought, how often is that me in life? where I'm out in a dark place that I don't completely understand, everything feels out of my control, and yet because I'm in that place, I can call out to my father and say, I'm scared. And he's faithful to draw us and to pull us close. The reality is that joy is a student of the master, and if the master is Jesus and we want joy, then we need to be students of him too. This is what Jesus says about experiencing the kinds of things that Beck experienced in that moment. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, his most famous sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He continues on, and then he wraps up the, this section by saying, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Here's the thing. Jesus, we established in Hebrews chapter 12, understood that he could endure things because he could see to the future as to what this was going to bring about. And what he is encouraging to us as his students, as our master, is that when things are difficult and when you're struggling... In fact, when you're suffering injustice, when you're suffering persecution, when things are not going the way that you hoped that they would, you are actually blessed. The world will tell you that you're being cursed, and he says it's a lie. You're being blessed. And that you should rejoice in those moments because it will be producing for you Christ-likeness, which brings a reward in heaven. In fact, the Apostle Paul wraps this up when he says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ. Love that. I want to know Christ. I hope that that's the cry of your heart. It's the cry of mine. I want to know him. And then he gives us two categories to know him in. The first one is I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to participate in his sufferings. I don't know if it's good news to you or not to know that joy is found when you're at the feet of the master who tells us that suffering and hardship and difficulty and persecution is actually a way to be blessed. It's a way that we can be united with him. We can participate with him in his life. Paul Miller, who's, who's a great author, I'd recommend any of his books. Um, he wrote a book called The J-Curve that talks about this idea that in following Jesus into his suffering, we actually are wedded together with him in his resurrection. And this is what he says about this idea. He says, when we embrace the fellowship of his sufferings, Jesus, it changes everything. Instead of nourishing our slights and running from suffering inherent in life and love, we embrace Christ in the suffering. 
because it's all about who you know. This is what being a follower of Jesus is. You have been drawn in to be close to him, the master, the creator of the universe who knows how things work and he tells us, stay near to me even when it's scary, even when it's dark, even when you're unsure because it's in that place that God's blessing will find you not as he necessarily takes away the suffering and the difficulty that you've experienced, but as you're brought close to him. Because joy is a student of the master. And if you want joy, then you need to be a student of the master as well. I'm going to give us one last one here. Number three, joy is a spark of rebellion. So we encourage the outbreak of the kingdom wherever we see it. Um, if you've been around here for any length of time, it's probably no surprise to you that I am a fan of uh, a small franchise called Star Wars. Um, and I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm hesitant to give recommendations of things that you should uh, watch or consume, but here we go. Uh, there's a great show that just wrapped up on Disney Plus called Andor that is about the birth of the rebellion. It's a great show. But as I was watching the uh, season finale that just happened a week or so ago, there was a quote in it that I, I just couldn't help but thinking about as I thought about joy and what joy brings about in us. You probably can't see her super clearly, but this is a great character in the show called Marva. She's an older woman. And this, this is a quote that she says. She says, if I could do it all over again, I'd wake up early and I'd fight from the start. If I could do it all over again, I'd wake up early and I'd fight from the start. Joy, when we inhabit it, when we grab it, when we find it, is a spark of rebellion. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what the scriptures say about the fight that we're engaged in. It says this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not here to fight against your political enemies or the people that you think have done you wrong. In fact, our fight is against rulers, authorities, and powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, when I say that, one of the things I'm trying to encourage is us in us is to put our eyes on the right enemy. Your enemy is not your neighbor. Your enemy is the forces of evil that are trying to lay claim over all of the worth of the earth. Now, when I read that, it also brings something about me. What in the world am I going to do in the fight against heavenly powers, in the fight against spiritual forces? What power do I have to fight in this rebellion? Very little. That's the answer. Very little. But I got good news for you. Colossians chapter 2 says this, He, that's Jesus, that's the master, disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The enemy is the spiritual forces that want to lay claim to the world. They claim to have power. They claim to have influence. They claim to want be the ones that make the rules. And if I'm responsible, if you're responsible, if we as the church are responsible for fighting against them and winning some battle, we're hopeless. But the good news is Jesus already fought the battle and he won. And because that is true... We get to do something that these characters in Star Wars can't do. They're trying to muster up a rebellion all on their own. There is a spark of rebellion found in joy because the reality is this war has been completed. And those, the problem is that those powers are still pretending that they have sway. 
They're still pushing their influence. They're still pushing violence. They're still pushing to have control. And we've been given the joyful future-seeing hope that we find at the feet of the master to say, oh no, you're not in charge anymore. In fact, our king has already won this battle and he's going to come back someday to set it all right. And while he's gone, we've got a job to do, folks. That's the reality. We have a job to do. Here's what Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologians, has to say. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, to politicians and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. This is the call at the Advent season for us. Our king has come. He has been victorious, and he's coming again. Act like it. That's the message of Christmas. He is victorious. It has already been decided. It has already been completed. We can see the future. We can learn from the master. We can be a people who bring a spark of rebellion wherever we go. And the reality of that is that the arrival of King Jesus in that humble cave kicked off a series of events that redefined reality as one grounded in that future joy and it compels us to live into it and to spread it far and wide. Part of having Enoch up here is to tell a story of how he is spreading that spark of rebellion all the way across the globe. From here, your investment, your part of this community, your finances that you give generously go in some small part through Enoch all the way around the world to bring a spark of rebellion because our king is victorious. Our king sits on the throne. No one else gets that claim. And anyone who tries is a false claimant. And we get the opportunity as his church, as we prepare for his coming, as we prepare to celebrate, to claim that it is true and to start seeding sparks of that rebellion. And our rebellion uses the tools of the Father. Our rebellion uses the tools of Jesus. We come humble and we come meek, we come mild, we come as servants, we come with love, we come with giving, because that's what he's done for us. I want you to experience joy, but I don't want it to be something transient that you only experience in a moment because that turkey was delightful or that Thanksgiving pie was the best you ever had. I'm happy that you got those things. I had some of them. I might have eaten an entire pie myself over the course of this weekend. I probably shouldn't have admitted that. <laughs> but the reality is that joy is the foundation in which everything else is built upon. It allows us to see the future, to be at the feet of the master, and to begin sowing sparks of rebellion, first in your own heart, then in this community, and then the world. And that's the cause we call you to the Advent season to engage with us as we go. Let's pray, and then we'll continue with our service. God. We come before you because we want to seek joy. We want to find joy in the place that you have for us. God, joy is not something that we manufacture in ourselves, something that we find outside of ourselves. Instead, it is something that you have brought, that you have made real, that you have made true. God, this is a world that has been transformed 
by the coming of your son, Jesus. And we remember and we celebrate and we look forward with waiting during the Advent season. God, we're so thankful for what you've done for us. God, we pray that we would be a people who bring sparks of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the power that we need to do so. Meet us with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.